0: This morning I'm going to talk about one of my favorite subjects, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 8. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 8, in a message I'm entitling The Empty Tomb. Luke chapter 24, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. It's okay for you to say risen indeed at this point. I'm just... Yeah, I didn't rehearse this part. (laughs) Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Luke's Gospel gives the short version. Of the first day of the resurrection. The story begins with a group of grieving women. And ends with a bewildered Peter. Stooping uncomfortably in an empty tomb. Gazing at the grave cloths. In verse 12 if you'll look. Marveling to himself what had happened. The first three verses focus on the empty tomb. Verses four through seven focus on the angel's message. And verses eight through 12 focus on this the clear and compelling evidence for the resurrection and the stubborn unbelief of the apostles in spite of the evidence. It was J.N.D. Anderson who said, Men and women disbelieve the Easter story, not because of the evidence but in spite of it, unquote. The Greek philosopher Sophocles said, truth is always the strongest argument. The Easter story claims to tell the truth. It claims that you can put truth in a grave, but that truth reserves the right to leave the grave. C.S. Lewis wrote, quote, a man can't always be defending the truth. There must be a time to feed on it. Henry Ware in his famous couplet wrote, quote, lift your voices in triumph on high for Jesus is risen and man cannot die, unquote. Jesus is risen, man cannot die at least not forever. And when I thought about C.S. Lewis's quote, a man can't always be defending the truth, there must be a time to feed on it. And I suspect that perhaps some of you came to think about it, and some of you came to feed on it that this is nourishment for your soul. Sir Lionel Luckhoe, who was listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's most successful criminal... Attorney stated, quote, The bones of Muhammad are in Medina. The bones of Confucius are in Shantung. The cremated bones of Buddha are in Nepal. Thousands pay pilgrimages to worship at their tombs, which contain their bones. But in Jerusalem, there's a cave cut in the rock. This is the tomb of Jesus. It is empty. Empty he writes he died physically and historically he arose from the dead and now he's seated at the right hand of the father unquote the empty tomb Look at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and they did not find the body of Jesus. All the gospel writers agree that Jesus rose on earth Sunday, the first day of the week. Matthew 28:1 says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mark 16, 2, very early in the morning, on the first day of the week. John 20, verse 1, on the first day of the week. For those of you who have friends and family who believe that the Bible is filled with hopeless contradictions, I want you to remind them from time to time. Could you please give me a couple? By the way, all four gospels agree without a doubt, Jesus lived and he died and he rose from the dead. These are the women who had come with him from Galilee and followed after, and they observed the tomb, how the body was laid. If you'll remember in verse 55 of the the previous chapter, it says, and the women who had come with him from the Galilee followed, and they observed the tomb, how the body was laid. They knew exactly where he was. The grieving entourage included Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, Joanna, and the others. That's what it says in verse 10. The women brought spices to mask the odor of death. They expected a traumatized body bearing the signs of torture. They expected to find the familiar odor of decomposition. They expected more sorrow. These women were vessels filled with heartache and anguish and grief. It makes perfect sense to me that the vast majority of us come to the resurrection service full of joy and full of the expectation that God is here, that Jesus is present. But for others, they come in different circumstances, in anguish or anger or grief C.S. Lewis described grief this way. He says, quote, It feels like being mildly concussed. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says, unquote. He wrote those words after the death of his beloved wife. Death will do that death fills us with sorrow and dread death is proof that we are mortal and limited and wretched death is business like simple decisive the former pastor of moody church irwin lutzer wrote quote by all standards death is a most dreaded event our society will pay any price to prolong life, just one more month or even day. Perhaps our desire to postpone death reflects our dissatisfaction with God's ultimate purpose. Remember, his work isn't finished until we're glorified. Most of us would like to see God's work remain half finished. We're glad we're called and justified, but we're not too excited about being glorified, unquote. It's that same statement that you've heard all your life. Everyone wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to. Yes, you know the answer. And so what did you come expecting this morning? Answers? hope, comfort. The women expected a dead body and a blocked entry. They expected an occupied tomb. The ladies were aware that a stone had been rolled in front of it and that it bore a seal. The circular heavy stone was rolled away, according to verse two. Frank Morris, an author of the book Who Moved the Stone, calls the stone, quote, the one silent and infallible witness to the whole episode, unquote. Bible scholars and researchers estimate that the stone perhaps weighed over two tons it was so heavy the women realized that they wouldn't have been able to move the stone and that they would have to enlist the help of someone the tomb was sealed with a heavy cord strung across the facade of the tomb with the Roman procurator's heavily embossed stamp and the penalty for breaking the seal was death that would have served as a rather severe incentive to leave the stone alone. But something or someone moved the stone. Frederick Beck wrote, quote, the stone at the tomb of Jesus was a pebble to the rock of ages inside, unquote. And so throughout history, Scholars and Bible teachers have seen in this stone a type and a picture of the hard heart, of the cynic or the skeptic. I've repeatedly told you that cynics and skeptics are both unbelievers. The skeptic says, I don't believe. But he or she is willing to be persuaded by the facts. The cynic says, I don't believe. But even in the presence of facts, even in the presence of the overwhelming evidence, they won't believe. Their heart is a stone. There is a stone rolled in front of the surface of their soul and they're not willing that anyone move the stone. No one is more aware than me that I can't move that stone. It's going to take a supernatural act. An intervention by supernatural powers to push the cynicism and the skepticism away from the surface of your heart. Several theories have been advanced to explain what happened that Sunday morning. Some suggest that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Some suggest that he lost consciousness, that somehow the torture and the trauma caused him to pass out. He faked death. Somehow he was revived in a cold, damp tomb. The pungent spices... awoke him. He regained his strength. He removed the shroud. He moved the stone. He overcame the Roman guard. He convinces his followers that he's risen from the dead. Others suggest that the women went to the wrong tomb. An empty tomb where they were met by a groundskeeper who said, he's not here, Meaning he's buried somewhere else. But this theory suffers from a serious flaw because if the, if the women went to the wrong tomb, then the Roman soldiers went to the wrong tomb and the disciples went to the wrong tomb and the angels went to the wrong tomb and the religious leaders went to the wrong tomb. Because if they went to the wrong tomb, the true tomb was still somewhere out there with a Roman guard, with a heavy stone, and with a dead body. My father taught me from a very early age. My father was from Sicily. He said, no body, no crime. (laughs) Others have suggested that the women and the disciples suffered from some sort of mass hysteria or mass hallucination. I grew up in the 60s. They tell me if you remember the 60s, you weren't really there. (laughs) I would be lying to you if I told you that some of my friends didn't hallucinate. Some of them did. But none of us shared a hallucination. And so we have to ask and answer a different question. Something has happened to the body. Look at the angel's message. Look what it says in verse 4. It says, and it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this. That behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. The empty tomb at first did not create belief. It created perplexity in verse 4 and bewilderment in verse 12. Look what it says. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves and he departed marveling to himself at what had happened. That word marveling means trying to make sense of what made no sense. The expression greatly perplexed in verse 4 could be translated utterly at a loss. Now the ladies experience a strange encounter with two men wearing glow-in-the-dark robes. According to the text, it was shining. Some have even suggested that their garments looked like they were on fire. Does this support the alien abduction theory? Well, let's say it all together. Ancient alien theorists say yes, if you watch ancient alien theorists on the History Channel. Ancient alien theorists say yes. Again, the women's first response is not belief in a resurrection. Their response is confusion and supposition. They suppose the body was moved or at least taken, at least according to John chapter 20, verse 13, where we read, quote, then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away, my Lord, and I don't know where they laid him," unquote. The empty tomb intensifies their distress. And what about you? Does the empty tomb intensify your curiosity, your distress? It should, if you have doubts or reservations about the resurrection of Jesus. By the way, you are free to doubt. You are free not to believe. But aren't you at least a little bit curious about what happened to the body? Because guess what? Something happened to the body of Jesus something natural, something supernatural. Other scholars have posited that the body was removed from the cross and that it was dumped in the Gihon or the the trash heap that was right next to this broad valley that lies just south of Jerusalem and that wild dogs or animals tore it to pieces while the trash was burning all around it. But if that were true then again the people in the first century almost certainly would have made a conscientious effort to discover that body. I'm gonna also suggest to you who took the body of Jesus. If friends, could they? If foes, would they? It doesn't make much sense because Clearly, if the Roman soldiers took the body and were going to hold it for ransom, clearly Rome's growing dissatisfaction with Christians and Christianity, all it meant is they needed to produce the body or the religious leaders, would they have stolen the body? Of course they wouldn't. Is there evidence that Jesus' friends disguised themselves, attacked a group of Roman soldiers, one pretending to be an angel from heaven, and then they snatched the body and then fabricate the story. But if that's true, how do you explain the change in their life? Was it taken by souvenir hunters? By aliens? By angels. The historian Luke records the details. He describes an angel's presence, the angel's radiance, and the angel's reassurance. Look what it says. Two men stood by them in shining garments. The angelic being offers reassurance in verses 5 and 6, and then a reminder about Jesus' words in verse 8. The angels appear to function as witnesses. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, we see in these two angels and in that tomb a type and a picture of the Ark of the Covenant, that mercy seat where the angels' wings touch The Bible says, in the mouth of at least two or three witnesses, let every fact be established. And the angels are there to testify that Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus made the angels. Angels announced his conception and birth. Now angels announce his resurrection. Later they're going to appear and point out his ascension into heaven in Acts chapter 1 verse 9. Angels ministered to Jesus in the wilderness of temptation. And in the garden of Gethsemane during the time of trial. Angels witnessed his beatings. Angels witnessed his crucifixion. Angels witnessed his death. And they watched And they watched. And they watched for any kind of signal from the Savior, an eye, a movement, a gesture. Something that would allow them to intervene, to stop the violence, to end the brutality, to bring the torture to an end. But Jesus is determined to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is determined to fulfill all prophecy. Jesus is determined to be your substitute to be your sin bearer, to be your savior. In verse five, look what it says. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? The ladies are overcome by these angelic beings. They literally bow to the earth and they press their face to the earth and they hear the angel's message. The angel's message. The women thought Jesus was dead and now the angels rebuke them and remind them that they should have known better. After all, Jesus said he would be delivered into the hands of the religious leaders and sinful men. He described in detail his arrest, the manner of his death, and his resurrection. R. Kent Hughes writes, quote, It was scandalous to look for Jesus in a grave. If you're looking for Elvis, the proper place is Memphis. Memphis in a Doric-style mausoleum with ornate brass and bronze fittings and marble among the dead, unquote. You might ask, are you making fun of other faith traditions? No. Other faith traditions may love the example of Jesus. Other faith Traditions may love the words of Jesus and the courage of Jesus and the faith of Jesus. They may preach the purity of his life or the injustice of his trial or the horror of his death or the curiosity of the rumors about the miracles, the myths, the superstitions, the surroundings of his alleged empty tomb. They may fill their sermons with the syrup of sentimental hope springing eternal. They might light a candle. They might make reference to a worm that throws off the chrysalis of the But they can't speak of the resurrection because they don't believe in the resurrection. For all their beautiful words and all their sentimental sayings. They're looking for a Jesus among the pantheon of every person who has ever died But he's not here. He's risen. The liberal churches seek Jesus among the dead. The History Channel and PBS and CNN look for Jesus among the dead. The atheist and the agnostic and the skeptic and the cynic. They're all searching through rotting graves and brass urns and empty monuments. But the angel's question is never answered by the frightened women. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Look what it says in verse six He is not here, but He is risen remember how he spoke to you when he was in the Galilee saying, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified the third day and rise again. If the resurrection of Jesus is a symbol, if the resurrection of Jesus is a metaphor, if the resurrection of Jesus is an allegory, the angels should have said, he is not here. Dude, he's everywhere. He's in the birds, and the bees, and the flowers, and the trees, and the moon up above, and a thing called love. I got you, most of you too young to remember that. I just love that song. Let me tell you about the birds, and the bees, and the, see, I hear somebody, I see your lips moving, you go, hey, I know that song. You can show me your ID after the service. Nothing could be further from the truth. He's alive. The text makes it not just painfully clear. The text literally reads in the original language, he has been raised. Later in the chapter, Jesus invites the disciples in verse 39, to touch him. Behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself, verse 40. Handle me and see for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have, unquote. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. The resurrected Jesus eats physical food on four different occasions, including, you guessed it, fish tacos on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. It's biblical food. The physical body of Jesus was touched and handled by different people. The New Testament records that on at least 12 different separate occasions, Jesus is seen by. One person, a few people, a lot more people, and then 500 plus people all at once. Most who were still alive when Paul penned the letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. Still later, he was seen by Stephen and Saul at his conversion, and John the Apostle on the island of Patmos. These were real eyewitness accounts. And you might be able to dismiss one as wishful thinking, or two as wishful thinking, or three as wishful thinking. But when the when the eyewitnesses start to exceed 500 people, then all of a sudden... It gets a little bit more difficult to dispute. The angel repeats the words of Jesus almost word for word in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day, it says. The messengers from heaven remembered God's word over and over and over again. They choose the word must. This must happen. It must be. God's plan had three steps betrayal, crucifixion, and then a resurrection death precedes the resurrection. In Mark 8:31 it says, "And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after 3 days rise again." Unquote. That's Matthew, Mark chapter 8 verse 31. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2 or Yeah, chapter 2, verse 2, speaks of angels as being fiery messengers from God. And that their testimony is reliable. And look what it says about evidence and unbelief in verse 8. And and in verse 8 it says, and they remembered his words. The Lord Jesus told the religious leaders in John chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And are you going to raise it in three days? But the temple he spoke of was the temple of his body. For some of you, your temple's pretty young. Some of you, the temple's starting to show signs of wear. Your temple has passed the three zero mark and the four zero mark. Oh, I see a few five zeros and six zeros, even some seven zeros. You've carried this temple through this life. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he believe. In every instance, when Jesus predicted his death, it always included his resurrection. This was to authenticate his message. In Matthew 26, 32, it says, but after I've been raised, I'll go before you into the Galilee. The Lord said he would come back to life and they didn't believe him. Some of you have been fascinated with time travel. You've even imagined what it would be like to go back in time and space and somehow be there on this place at this day. Imagine if you had a time machine and you said, I would go back to the day of the resurrection. I would go there just before dawn. I would want to make sure that I see with my own eyes the reality of the resurrection. The followers of Jesus were there that Sunday morning. They had the testimony of an empty tomb. They had the testimony of the women. They had the testimony that the women heard the testimony of the angels. And they didn't believe it. So don't be so hard on your mother or your father or your brother or sister or whoever you dragged to church this morning and they go, I don't believe it. I just can't bring myself to believe this. If it's any comfort to you, neither did the ladies at first, and neither did the apostles. The ladies report the news to Peter and the apostles in verse 9, and they don't believe the ladies in verse 11. Their words, it says, seem like idle tales. They don't believe them. Their response is modern. It is sophisticated. It is skeptical. But I want to suggest something to you that you may or may not believe. The resurrection wasn't a fabrication by the church, but rather the church was created by the resurrection. The church did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the church We Christians need not get defensive or upset. The disciples' doubt may not be exemplary, but it is instructive. The resurrection is hard to believe, and that's why the Spirit of God has to do a work in the heart of the unbeliever. It is the Holy Spirit who cuts the cord And pushes the stone away. And then invites you into the empty tomb. By the way, if you continue in the skepticism and unbelief, you still have to explain what happened to the body of Jesus. You might think, I don't have to explain anything. Oh, but you do. Because now you know, you know what the Bible says, you know what the Bible claims, you know what the Bible says and claims about the human condition and the human heart and the problem of sin and the need of a savior. A.W. Tozier wrote, quote, Every man will have to decide for himself whether or not he can afford the terrible luxury of unbelief, unquote. Unbelief means that you still have to search for meaning. Only now your search doesn't include a resurrected Savior. But I have bad news for you. Skepticism Cynicism doesn't make death go away. The Bible says it's appointed once for a human being to die and then the judgment. Unbelief has nowhere to go in order to find hope. One of the greatest preachers of all time, Phillips Brooks said, quote, the great Easter truth is not that we are to live newly after death, but that we are to be new here and now in the power of the resurrection. That's the real message of Easter. It isn't that you're going to be changed sometime in the future. It's that you can be changed right now. Your life can be different now. You can experience grace and mercy now. Forgiveness and peace now. Phillips Brooks wrote, Tomb, thou shalt not hold him longer. Death is strong, but life is stronger. Stronger than the dark, the light. Stronger than the wrong, the right. Faith and hope triumphant say, Christ will rise. On Easter Day, he's risen. Let me pray for you, Heavenly Father. I pray for each and every individual. Once again, Lord, I pray for the heart damaged, broken. Lord, I pray for the person who is sitting in his seat or her her seat who say, You have no idea how far gone I am. And Lord, I remember my own thoughts when I first heard the story of Lazarus coming to life. My thoughts drifting making the statement, I wonder if Jesus can bring something dead back to life. If he can bring me back to life. The angel asked, why do you seek the living among the dead? And Lord, I know that For many dead people, they seek hope among the living. And Lord, I pray that you would impart that hope. Lord, I pray that they would just simply confess their sin, knowing that you're faithful and just to forgive it. Lord, I pray that they would acknowledge their sin and the need for a savior. Lord, I pray that they would admit that they've come to believe that Jesus has in fact risen from the dead and that he can change them. And so again, on this glorious resurrection day when we have the great and wonderful opportunity to celebrate with family and friends, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be full of joy and full of hope. And full of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.